you know, what you're doing here. And I think you're really inspiring. It's just great to see that things like this happen. So praise God for what you're doing. Um, as was introduced, I'm going to be, and as you can see in the title, we're going to be talking about Passover promises fulfilled. And we're going to look at the Jewish celebration of Passover, but also we're going to look and see how our Lord Jesus fulfilled the Passover. And especially as we're in this time of Lent, it's a great opportunity to just remind ourselves, or maybe to learn some new stuff about why we didn't realise Jesus did or said that. So that's the hope, that's the intention for today. Um, you're probably thinking, who is this person? Why is he talking about Jewish Passover? So just to give a little bit of background about myself, I was born into an Orthodox Jewish family in Liverpool, and I was brought up in all the rites that a Jewish male would be involved with. So when I was eight days old, I was circumcised, which as I'm sure a lot of you know, is part of the covenant between Abraham and the Israelites, and that covenant has continued for thousands of years, to this, still to this day. And when I was 13, I had my bar mitzvah, which is when you read from the portion of the Old Testament in front of the community. No mean challenge, because you're 13, and as a male, your voice is breaking, and you have to sing it. So one minute your voice is very high, and then it's very low. So you can imagine, it was quite a challenge. And after I read my bar mitzvah piece, the rabbi laid hands on me and he prayed Aaron's priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you and make his peace. And if I'm honest, I loved being in the Jewish faith. I loved the festivals. My favourite festival was the Passover because it's so full of ritual symbolism and it's specifically designed to engage the children in the family. So there's all these wonderful foods that you eat, which I'll talk about shortly, and there's beautiful singing, and, well, not always beautiful singing, but beautiful <laughs> songs. <laughs> you know, it's, that's all part of it. And that was very much the culture and the heritage, and I didn't question it. I went to a Jewish school, 99% of my friends were Jewish, and I'm perfectly happy with it. If I'm honest, looking back now, I can see that I had a relationship with God our Father, but it's very much a God who was up in the heavens. I didn't feel as though I had a personal relationship with God. It was a God who existed, absolutely, who had done wonderful things for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and was still alive today, but a distant God. And when I was 18, I moved away to Preston, and I studied psychology, and through a whole range of circumstances, the accommodation situation was terrible there, I ended up sharing a room with somebody who I used to go to school with, and then there was somebody else in the house who I've never met before, and she was practicing Catholic. Now, I had never met anybody who was Catholic before, let alone a Christian. And we just struck it off immediately. There was a deep, profound friendship that started straight away, and she had this tremendous peace and joy about her. Um, she was also very attractive, I have to say, so I wasn't <laughs> But, you know, and as time went on, you know, that friendship grew and grew, and she shared her Catholicism with me, and I shared my Judaism with her. And I thought, that's fine, that's great, no problems. And then a few months later, she was going back to her home community in Altrincham, South Manchester, and she said, would you like to come home and meet my family, meet my community? I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I went to Manchester, ironically it was very close to the Orthodox Jewish area in Singleton Road, very, very close, where there's a lot of Jewish retreats, so God sent a few, it's incredible. 
Um, and on the Saturday evening, my friend Emma, she said, listen, I'm going to Mass now. I have no idea what Mass was, no idea. And she said, you're welcome to come along if you want, but there's no pressure. And I thought, oh gosh, should I be doing this? I'm an Orthodox Jewish person, should I be going to Mass? And I felt guilty, I felt afraid, if I'm honest. But I thought, she's been kind enough to invite me to go to Mass, I'll go along. So it was the first time I was 18 years old, very naive, first time I'd ever set foot in a Catholic church. And I was immediately blown away by the symbolism, but also by the similarities of a Catholic church and a Jewish synagogue. And I could see this light at the far end of the church, and I thought, what's that? And I'll explain a bit more about that later. But that started me asking questions. And I experienced Mass for the first time, and I'll be honest, I didn't really understand what was happening, but there were little things that were being said that triggered things of my Jewish experience of the Passover that made me think, wait a minute, what, what's this about? But a lot of the language sort of threw me because I wasn't used to, you know, to a lot of phrases. And at the end of the Mass, I cried in a way that I had never cried before. It touched me so profoundly, and I couldn't really explain why did it have that impact on me. Clearly, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Lord's presence, but I didn't know that at the time. And time went sort of on, and um, over the next three, four years, I was on this conversion journey and other experiences that I had, which God was making it pretty clear that he was just very gently bringing me into the fullness of the truth and the fulfillment of the Jewish faith in the Catholic Church. And long story short, I was received into the church as a Catholic on the 1st of January, 1994. Uh, 1st of January, as I'm sure you all know, a feast day of the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. Because I, by that stage, being a good Jewish boy, I had a very close relationship to Our Lady, because she's your mother. So it was a natural thing for me to have a relationship with Our Lady, and understanding, wow, this makes perfect sense. And I didn't know that there were particular readings of January the 1st, because it's a solemnity. And lo and behold, the first reading was, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And I thought, oh my word, there's me thinking, I've picked this day. Gosh, God, you are just incredible. He'd picked that day because it was fulfilling my, my bar mitzvah. And the gospel reading that day was the circumcision of Jesus as well. So I thought, God will never be outdone in generosity and in love. So it just I just wanted to give a little bit of backstory because hopefully that really gives context for why I'm here today and what I'd love to share with you. So if we look at the Old Testament, and I know some of you will be really familiar with this, I know some of you are doing the Bible in a year. I've just stopped, well not just, I started doing it on January the 1st this year. I think it's great, really good. Father Mike Schmitz, an American priest, he's taking us through everyday parts of the Bible so that by the end of the year we'll cover the whole of the scriptures. And I think it's wonderful because he gives the context for each scripture passage. So if we look at the Old Testament, the great event for the Jewish people in the Old Testament is the Exodus. Egypt. And of course, when we come to the Eastern Liturgy, we'll hear all about the story of the Exodus and leading up to it. And that was around 3,200 years ago. And bear in mind, the Israelites have been slaves for 430 years, a phenomenal amount of time. Multiple, multiple generations of being slaves. And of course, if we go to Egypt today, we can still see the pyramids, so we can see the work that the Israelite slaves have done those thousands of years ago. 
And we see in the scriptures, don't we, that at a particular moment in time, God calls Moses to be his spokesperson and to lead the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And this is the wonderful story of the Exodus. And we look at the ten plagues. These are the plagues that God inflicts on the Egyptians. The idea is for Pharaoh to realise you are not the big I am. You might be the Pharaoh of Egypt, but God wants the Israelites to be set free from slavery. And they have plague after plague. And they weren't just random plagues. So for example, for the, river, the first plague of the River Nile turning to blood. The River Nile was sacred for the Egyptians, so God was showing his authority, his power that what was being worshipped as a deity by the Egyptians. God had authority over that. He's the Lord of creation. And we go through all of these plagues, and as you know, we come to the ninth plague, there's darkness over the land of Egypt. And then the final plague is the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. And again, as you can imagine, that would be a horrific tragedy to hit a civilization. But especially for the Pharaoh, because his firstborn son was the natural heir to the kingdom. So this plague, the death of the firstborn, would have led to the death of his natural heir. And we reach that point in Exodus where we're in Exodus 12. Moses goes to the Israelites and he says, you know, this is the night when you are going to be set free. And he instructs them then to take a lamb or a goat. And then what they have to do is, it has to be a lamb or goat, one year old, i.e. in the prime of its life. It needs to be unblemished, so no stain of it at all. It needs to be unblemished. And it's male, and not one bone of its body is to be broken. That is the specific requirement of this Passover exodus and the meal that they're going to eat. And they have to eat the meal, but also they have to take a hyssop branch and they dip the hyssop branch into the blood of the lamb and they sprinkle it on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. And the idea is that when the angel of death comes, it literally passes over those homes that have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. So literally, the blood of the lamb saves them. And I can see you're nodding, thinking, yeah, we know where this is going. Great, wonderful. Really important though, because all of this, it, you know, there's this phrase in the church and in scripture study of things are a type. So we have types in the Old Testament which are fulfilled in the New Testament through our Lord Jesus. And that's a type, the Exodus is a type of what was to come when our Lord was to, to set us free from slavery of sin, not just slavery of the Egyptians, yeah? So they sprinkle the blood on the doorpost. And the Hebrew word for Passover is Pesach. Yeah, so now can you see where we get Paschal candle come from? Our Paschal celebration, Paschal sacrifice, is from that Hebrew word Pesach, which literally means to pass over. As the Israelites are leaving Egypt, there's no time for them to, you know, pretty much do anything else. They're leaving that night. So they have bread, but there's no time for the bread to rise. So it's unleavened bread, which is literally baking on their backs as they're leaving land of Egypt. So this unleavened bread is part of the exodus from Egypt. And then we have that wonderful story of leaving the land of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and the miracle of the Red Sea parting. The Israelites go through, each, um, Pharaoh and the Egyptians try to follow them and as we know the waters come back down and it destroys um, the Egyptians so the Israelites are able to walk into freedom. 
And we hear, don't we, in the scriptures that the Israelites, they travelled through the wilderness on the way to the promised land of Canaan, which is now Israel, 40 years. Now, if you were to walk it, it would not take you 40 years. There's a particular reason why it took 40 years. And it was because the Israelites soon forgot the wonderful things that the Lord did for them. So, I think it's fascinating really, I'll have to admit, listening to the Bible in a year again. We've just finished Exodus, and, well, actually that was a few weeks ago. But almost every, everything, every chapter we hear pretty much in Exodus after the great event has taken place. We've got God's wonderful faithfulness, and we've got the Israelites falling away and falling into sin. So they've had this wonderful liberation experience of half a millennium of being slaves set free. And then before long, you know, they're, they're building a molten calf. And you think, what, what's going on here? And you think, actually, would we be any different? You know, it's so easy for us to fall into sin. Now, one of the things that God wanted for the Israelites, he wanted them to celebrate the festival of Passover as a memorial year after year. And to this very day, the Jewish people still celebrate Passover. So it lasts for seven days in Israel, and it lasts for eight days outside of Israel. And that extra day, really, it's symbolic of the yearning of the Jewish people is that they're in their spiritual homeland of Israel, so you have that extra day. And just the final bit, really, on the point of Exodus. If we have a look at chapter 16, verse 2, you know, I was saying about the Israelites, you know, God's done these wonderful things for them, and then all of a sudden they're complaining, and this is what it says in Exodus 16, verse 2. And the whole community of the sons of Israel began to complain. Another word that's used is murmured. Bear this in mind. They murmured. They complained. Complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to them, Why did we not die at the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we were able to sit down to pots of meat and eat bread to our heart's content? As it is, you have brought us to this wilderness to share with this whole company to death. And that's not long after the Exodus. It's a bit sad, isn't it, really? But then we hear in Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now I will rain down bread for you from the heavens. Each day the people are to go out and gather the day's portion. And one of the lovely stories of that is that when this miraculous bread from heaven appeared, the Israelites said, What is it? Which in Hebrew is mahu. What is it? And that's where they believe the name manna came from. Mahu, manna, almost. And it was like, what is, what is this miraculous bread? And that's what fed the Israelites on their way to the Promised Land. And again, I know you can see pennies dropping, you know, it's very significant. They're, they're being fed on their journey to the Promised Land with the bread from heaven. <coughs> so the Israelites, they pass through the land and they're on the way to the Promised Land and they're celebrating the festival of Passover each year. And as I say, that continues to this very day. And I've just brought some artifacts so that you can actually see them. Um, the prayer book that is used for the festival of Passover is called the Haggadah, uh, which literally means the retelling. So in a couple of weeks' time, the Jewish people, so my brother and his family, my aunties and uncles, they'll be reading and singing from the Haggadah, and it's telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And bonus if you want to have a look later. And it's lovely because you've got it in Hebrew and English as well. So. Um, you know, it's good because it helps children to learn it as well, to understand, although they learn Hebrew, it's good to understand the translation. So that's the Haggadah. And then we also have 
what's known as the Seder plate. So for the festival of Passover, the most important days in Israel, for the first night, you have what's called the Seder night, when you eat the Passover supper. It's called the Seder night, and in Hebrew, the word Seder means order. And because there's a particular order of how the Passover liturgy takes place, and there are 15 steps to the Passover liturgy. Now it's interesting, a lot of theologians believe that in the temple, there were 15 steps that went up to the Holy of Holies. Not coincidence, yeah? So this is the Seder plate, and on the Seder plate, we have particular foods which are symbolic of the foods that will be eaten at Passover, and it's all a reminder of the exodus from Egypt. So for example, you would have, on here you would have a shoulder, or um, it's, the, it's the shoulder bone of a lamb. And the idea is it's a reminder of the lamb that was sacrificed during the exodus. You would have a piece of parsley, and parsley is a reminder, it's the first fruits of, sorry, first, first vegetables of spring, but it's also a reminder of the hyssop branch that was used, that was dipped in the blood of the lamb and sprinkled on the doorpost. You have what's called chazeret, and in Hebrew, um, you have that is the cement mixture. Now, it's meant to symbolize the cement mixture that was used in building the pyramids. Ironically, it's really tasty because it's made up of ground almonds and chopped apple, a little bit of cinnamon to give it that sort of cement mixture. So my wife and I, we do Passovers around the country, and people say, oh, can we have more of that uh, cement mixture, please? It's lovely. <laughs> I think, yeah, it is meant to be bitterness, but yeah, I know it's nice, it's lovely. And then you also have salt water as well. And the idea of the salt water, it's a reminder of the tears of sadness of the Israelites because they were slaves in Egypt. So you can imagine celebrating this, and especially with children, they love it because it's a real life experience and using symbolism to celebrate God's mercy and God's great act of omnipotence thousands of years ago. It happens year after year after year. So that's the safe place. And then remember we said that when they came out of Egypt they had bread on their backs and there wasn't time for the bread to rise. So the tradition is now, I know some of you have seen this before, matzah, yeah? So it's unleavened bread, there's hardly anything in it. So if you've got any allergies, this is perfect, it really is, there's just hardly anything in it, but it, it's actually quite nice. Although you do tend to find that if you've been, because you don't eat any bread or anything yeasted during Passover for the eight days, when you're crunching on this, your teeth start to ache a bit and your gums are really sore, but it is nice. Yeah, so that's the matter. And then one of the other key points of the Passover supper as well. So you would have those foods at particular times in the celebration of the Passover. And there are particular moments when you eat the matzah. And there's one piece where after you've had shared meals, so you have a liturgy, you have um, prayers that are said, some of the songs that are sung, and you also have four ritual cups of wine. That's the norm for every single Jewish Passover. You have two cups before a shared meal, and then you have two cups after the meal, okay? So they're really important, really symbolic, and they're all part of celebrating God's plan of salvation for the Jewish people, the four cups of wine, okay? One of the, uh, I was just gonna say as well, you know what I was saying about having the blood on the doorpost of the lamb? So on the blood on the doorpost and it was the lamb's blood. So a tradition that began, uh, and again it's in the scriptures, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, 
where God wanted the Israelites to have the word of God in their homes. And it says, and I'll read it for the scripture, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. It's the prayer that is the most important prayer for the Jewish people called the Shema. And it's probably the equivalent of the Our Father for us. And it begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Remember, Jesus uses this in his teaching, doesn't he? Let these words, let these words I urge you, urge on you today, be written on your heart. And they're to be written on your heart. And there are particular items of clothing that a Jewish male would wear. So I brought my talis with me. Um, this is actually a messianic talis from Jerusalem. It's got a lot of the scripture references that point to Jesus as being the Messiah. So by all means, if you want to have a look after this. And I wonder if you could put the next one on, please. It's like Chris Whitty, isn't it? <laughs> next slide. Next. <laughs> so it says also in Deuteronomy, have a sign on your doorpost. So if you were to go to any Jewish home, on the front of their house, on the right-hand side. Not just the front door, but each room in their house. They'll have one of these. Has anyone seen one of those before? Yeah, do you remember what it's called? No, I don't remember. Oh, it's up there, sorry, don't look, don't look. <laughs> it's a mezuzah, okay, it's called a mezuzah. And the idea is that when you walk into your home, when you walk into a synagogue, this is actually the Western Wall in Jerusalem, so the last remaining part of the Second Temple. You put your hand to it and you kiss it. And the idea is that you're really inviting God to be in your home, in your place of dwelling. A really beautiful tradition. And that's called the mezuzah. And then if we have the next slide, please. So inside the mezuzah is the prayer of the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord is our God. Um, so it's a little bit out of focus, but um, you get a feel for what it's like. And again, I've all of mine with me. So this was actually from Jerusalem, and as you can see, you've got the scripture inside of it, the prayer of Shema. And one of the other beautiful traditions as well for the Jewish people was that because their firstborn males survived the death when the angel of death came over, there was this tradition of the Jewish males saying thank you, the parents saying thank you that our firstborn males survived. So what you would do when the temple was around, when the temple was in existence, Bethlehem. And again, in Hebrew, Bet Lechem, it means the house of bread. It's not coincidence. 
bread of life is born in the house of bread. Literally, that's where it comes from. And I just want to go through some scripture passages, really, which really point to how our Lord was fulfilling the Passover. And there'd always been a longing and a yearning in the Jewish people that experienced the Exodus, but there was this expectation that there was going to be a spiritual Exodus, that there was going to be a new relationship with God. It wasn't clearly defined, they didn't fully know what it meant, but that there was going to be this new Exodus of a different type, an Exodus, you know, of this, as I say, it's not just coming out of a land, but being set free from sin. So don't be here when John the Baptist is baptising, when Jesus comes along and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now if you think about it with Jewish ears, if somebody says about human being, Behold the Lamb of God, you think, wait a minute, what are you talking about? The Lamb of God in the Jewish notion would be the Lamb of God of the Passover, but all those sacrifices of lambs that were offered up in the temple, thousands of them, in atonement for sins, and yet that's how John the Baptist introduces Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. And if we look at Jesus' teaching and his ministry, I think, you know, John chapter 6, I mean, it's just an absolute goldmine of teaching on the Eucharist, as I'm sure you all know, it's, you know, remarkable. And we hear in verse 30 of John chapter 6, the Jewish people say, what sign will you give us to show that we should believe in you. Our fathers ate lamb to eat in the desert. So they're harking back to the Exodus from Egypt and the miracle of the manna from heaven. And then lo and behold, Jesus goes on to say, and this is John 6, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the desert, and they are dead. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that a man may eat it and not die. I am the living bread which has come down from heaven, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. And then here's the key phrase. The Jewish people started arguing, and the translation is also murmuring. Yeah, remember we had in the Exodus from Egypt, they started murmuring. It's the same word. The Jews started arguing, murmuring with one another. How can he give us his flesh to eat? And if you think about it, you know, if Jesus is giving a teaching, eat my flesh, drink my blood, that was so radical for Jewish ears, because for a start it sounds like cannibalism, doesn't it? How can that be? But also, from the blood point of view, and this is still true to this day, Jewish people follow, as you probably know, the rules of kashrut, so there are certain foods they can eat and can't eat. One absolute no-no is they do not have the blood of an animal. Blood is an absolute no-no, so the blood has to be drained from any animal that they eat, and it's prepared in a very particular way. But the reason for that is that in the Jewish mindset, blood is life, and life belongs to God. And here in John 6, we've got Jesus saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What Jesus is saying is, if you're, drink, you know, if you're drinking my blood, you are receiving the divine life within you. So when we think about the context of the Eucharist, the real presence, it all makes sense. And we hear in the scriptures, again, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you most solemnly, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man or drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, 
and I shall raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And then we hear in verse 59, he taught this doctrine at Capernaum in the synagogue. After hearing it, many of his followers said, this is intolerable languages. How could anyone accept it? And then he left him. And I, I just find it fascinating that Jesus didn't say, oh, I didn't mean it in that way, don't take me literally. He did mean it. And he was meant to be taken literally. I think in our Catholic understanding of the doctrine of transubstantiation, this is the scripture, obviously, par excellence. But we can only understand it by tying into the Jewish Passover, because this is the context. I just wanted to now move on to, really, the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist, because this takes place within the context of the Jewish Passover. It's a Seder night, and there are so many things that happen and that Jesus says that all pointed towards the celebration of Passover. In fact, if we look at Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus says, I have ardently longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, because I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, there are certain parts of the Passover liturgy where the bread, the matzah, is eaten and where the wine is drunk for ritual cups of wine. So after you've had the meal, you have a liturgy to start with, with prayers, the first two cups, and then you have a meal, like we have our shared lunch, you have a meal, and then after the meal, there's a piece of matzah that's eaten. And we can see, because we hear in the scriptures, that after the meal, Jesus took some bread he instituted the Eucharist. It was when the bread, the matzah, would have been eaten during the Passover. And Jesus says, doesn't he, Mark 14, verse 22, take it, this is my body. And then what would normally happen in a Jewish Passover supper, you would have the third cup of wine, and this is the cup of redemption. And we hear, don't we, in Matthew 26, verse 26, that Jesus took a cup, and when he had returned thanks, he gave it to them. Drink of it, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is using the Jewish liturgy, the third cup of the Passover meal, where he's instituting, instituting the Eucharist. And I just wanted to share with you um, a book that I came across Actually, no, that's a lie. I didn't come across it. My wife very kindly bought it for me about 10 years ago. And I have to admit, it's one of the best books I've ever read on the Eucharist and the fulfilment of the Jewish Passover. And I know I was speaking to somebody here earlier who's reading this already. It's called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. It's by a very well-known American theologian called Brant Pitree. I personally think it's wonderful, and he goes through all of the scripture details, not just the written law, but the oral tradition of the Jewish people, and how Jesus was fulfilling everything in the Passover. So by all means, have a look. I think it's wonderful. I'm on, I'm on commission, so don't worry. Uh, but if you have a look at that. And I just wanted to share with you just a couple of bits that he picks up from that, which really, my heart started beating really fast when I read it. Um, because if we look at Mark 14, verse 26, we're told that after the Psalms, so these are the great Psalms of praise, they're also the Messianic Psalms, 115 to 180. 
told that straight after the Psalms, Jesus left for the Mount of Olives. Now that would have been radical. It's easy for us to lose sight of what's happening here. But what we're being told, and scripture scholars are suggesting, quite possibly has happened, is that Jesus didn't finish the Passover meal with his apostles. He hasn't drunk the fourth cup yet. He's drunk the third cup, but he's drunk the fourth cup. And he goes straight to the Mount of Olives, which is interesting, the place where the Jewish people believe the resurrection of the dead will come from. Interesting. And in the previous chapter, Mark 14, verse 25, Jesus says, I tell you solemnly, I shall not drink any more wine until the day I drink the new wine in the kingdom of God. And if we continue in the last few hours of our Lord's life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is Jesus saying? Take this cup away from me. Now we can understand that at one level as the cup of suffering. But what Grant Pitcher and another theologian Scott Hahn are proposing is that maybe Jesus was also referring to the fourth cup, that in his own body he was to become this fourth cup in some mystical spiritual way. <coughs> Jesus carries his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, and we hear in the scriptures that he was offered wine and mirth to drink. And the understanding of that is that it was a tiny act of clemency to somebody who was going to be crucified because it would dull your senses just a little bit. And does Jesus drink the wine? No, he doesn't. He refuses to drink the wine. And we come to the crucifixion itself. And again, this is where we see how our Lord was totally fulfilling the Passover promises that we mentioned in the Old Testament. So we think Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's male. He's unblemished, i.e. no stain of sin. He's in the prime of his life. And lo and behold, we hear only John 19, verse 33, not one bone of his body was broken. As I'm sure some of you are probably aware of, what would normally happen was that if you were crucified, it was coming up for the Sabbath, so if you hadn't yet died, they would break your legs so that it just hastened your death. But Jesus had died already, so they didn't need to break his legs. So fulfilling the scriptures to the nth degree, he is the Lamb of God. A very small line in the scriptures we hear in John 19, verse 23, that Jesus wore a seamless garment. I don't know about you, but when I studied, when I first heard that scripture, why are we being told the item of clothing that Jesus wore when he dies on the cross? And again, there's a reason for it. And the Greek word is kiton, or kaporet. And that's exactly the same word of the item of clothing that the high priest wore when he sacrificed the animals on behalf of the people of Israel. So we can see here, Jesus, he is the high priest, and he is the victim. Yeah, it's those little details that are there. And then, John 19, verse 29, when Jesus cries out, I am thirst. Again, we can understand that as Jesus thirsting for souls, but lo and behold, what happens when Jesus cries out, I thirst? We hear that one of the centurions, he gets a status stick and he puts um, a sponge on it and then a little bit of a hyssop branch on top of the sponge. He dips it in wine and raises it high to Jesus on the cross. Now, where have we heard the hyssop branch before? Yeah, the Old Testament, the Lamb of God saving the people. And this time Jesus drinks 
He drinks that little sip of wine, and what does he say? It is accomplished. And what the scripture scholars are suggesting is that what Jesus began at the Passover supper in the upper room the previous night in the Passover, Jesus was fulfilling his death on the cross. And he says, it is accomplished. In a mystical way, that fourth cup is fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. We hear in the scriptures that when Jesus died, in Matthew 27, verse 51, that the temple veil split in two. Now, I'm quite inquisitive. I'm thinking, you know, what was this temple veil? And if you have a look at the, um, the understanding, the idea was that the temple veil separated the holiness of God from the sinfulness of man. It was a sort of separation in physical form. And interesting, that, interesting that the Pharisees, the actual root of the word Pharisee is lehit pares in Hebrew, which means to separate. So literally their job was separating the holiness of God from the sinfulness of man. And if you look, they do a lot of research as they believe the temple veil was 60 feet long, four inches thick, it weighed four tons, and it would take 300 men to move it. So if you think about it, when Jesus dies on the cross, this temple veil shatters. There's no way humanity could have moved that, 300 people moving it at the same time. And again, it's maybe a sign for us that Jesus was breaking through that barrier of sin and restoring humanity's relationship with God. Um, just in my sort of final part, really, I wanted to just look at more obvious ways where Jesus is the fulfilment of the scriptures. So if we can see here, we've got a picture of the high priest in the temple. So the role of the high priest, he offered particular sacrifices for the Jewish people. And on the Day of Atonement, that's the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people, the priest would go in and he would offer incense and say very specific and particular prayers. And the Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred object for the Jewish people. So this is in the first temple, because after Israel was ransacked in 586, the temple was destroyed and the, 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 um, the Ark went missing. But in the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant was the holiest place. And if we go to the next slide, please. Within the Ark of the Covenant, we had three particular items that were very, very special for the Jewish people. So you had the Ten Commandments, so the Word of God. You had a pot that contained the manna from heaven, the, the heavenly bread. And you had Aaron's staff, so Aaron being the first high priest, and his staff miraculously budded. So these are the holy objects of the Ark of the Covenant. And for Jewish people, they believe that God dwelt within this tabernacle area and the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence with, with the Jewish people in this way. And if we think about it, in our Lord, we have the Word made flesh. We have the bread come down from heaven. We have the eternal high priest. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these key things that are so precious for the Jewish people. And I know all of you have a, a great devotion to Our Lady, and it makes sense why we have a beautiful title of Our Lady, Our of the Covenant. Because if you think about it, Mary's womb would have been the first tabernacle. How incredible is that? The first tabernacle was our blessed mother's womb. So if you could do the next slide, please. I came across this beautiful church. So I think it's in Chicago. Um, so as you can see, we have the tabernacle. 
And the idea is that um, we can see Our Lady being the new arm of the covenant. I thought it was very beautiful as well. I noticed yesterday when Pope Francis consecrated the world to Our Lady and he referred to the title Ark and Covenant. Wow, that's, that's powerful, very powerful. The last bit I wanted to sort of share with you, and again to go back to the start of my story. So you know I said when I first went into a Catholic church, I was blown away at the similarities between a synagogue and a Catholic church. So if we go to the next slide, please. Actually, my synagogue in Liverpool wasn't as beautiful as grand as this. This is a very beautiful synagogue. Now you can't quite see it, but the layout of every Jewish synagogue will be the centre point. The centre point is what's called the Ark. Okay, and it'll have a curtain over it, interestingly, like the old, like the temple. And then within the ark, you would have the scriptures, the Torah, so the five books of Moses and the Psalms. But you will also have, without fail, the light that is hanging in front of the ark. And the idea is it's called the Netamid, the everlasting light. And the idea is that God is present in the Word. So any synagogue in the world, no matter where, they will all have a Nehtamid. And when you walk past the ark, you bow because you recognise God's presence in the word. Okay? If we do the next slide, please. The Jewish people being people of the book, like ourselves, the Torah is clothed in beautiful finery. So as you can see, it's almost treated like royalty. It would have a crown on, it would have beautiful decorations. Um, and this is very much for the Jewish people. The Word of God is so precious. A Jewish person would never dream of having a Bible on the floor. And I remember once when I um, went to, it was actually a Catholic um, group at the, uh, when I was at university, and I, I went to the chaplaincy, and there were Bibles on the floor. And I said, I don't mean to be rude, but do you mind not having the Bible on the floor? Because I find that quite offensive. And they didn't mean it, they didn't know, but in my experience, why would you put the Word of God? We wouldn't put a baby's food on the floor. How much more should we not put the word of God on the floor? So my wife now just says, oh, yeah, put the Bible in the bookcase. Yes, yes, it's all fine. So you can see how beautifully decorated the, the scriptures are. Then go to the next one, please. And then this is what the Torah looks like. So it's made of parchment and it's handwritten. So just to have a thought here, this is handwritten and you've written all of the Old Testament. And if you make a mistake, it's not a noise. You cannot make a mistake with it. So if ever you get the opportunity to go to Mishnah, in Masada, you're able to go to, there's a, a lovely, beautiful area where you can sometimes see a scribe who is writing the scriptures with his quill on the parchment. So obviously they're saying, please don't disrupt it, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, and the beautiful thing is, when you read from the scriptures, so obviously Saturday, today, the Sabbath, that's when the scriptures are read by the Jewish people. The rabbi or somebody from the congregation, or if you've got a mitzvah, you would, you know, read from the scriptures. But you don't touch the parchment with your bare hands. That's how precious and sacred it is for the Jewish people. So if we go to the next slide, please. You have what's called the Yad. And that's Hebrew for that, it means the hand, and I've brought one with me. And the idea is that it, it's pointing to rather than physically touching the Torah, you actually use this and you follow it along. So again, it just gives that sense of how precious the Word of God is. And, you know, for us as Catholics, I really believe how precious.
precious the Word of God is, you know? The more we ingratiate ourselves into the Scriptures, the better I believe our, we can understand our Lord and grow in our faith. So I just wanted to um, finish with, um, it's, a, it's in the Catechism, it's paragraph 1340, and really it sums up the Eucharist and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. And it says, by celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus is passing over to his Father by his death and resurrection. The new Passover is anticipated in the Supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates the final Passover of the Church in the glory of the kingdom. So by all means, if you want to have a look at NPD, you're more than welcome. This is the book, I couldn't recommend it enough. We've just scratched the surface today. You know, we, you could spend a year minimum going through, but it's a wonderful book.